From Canada Land, this is Oppo. Salut, c'est Justin Ling of Montréal. Je suis contre Jen Gerson. I don't understand what you just said. <laughs> I'm Jen Gerson in Calgary, where we don't speak French. And I'm opposed <laughs> to Justin Ling, who is apparently continuing his cosmopolitan tour of the modern-day Gomorrahs. Yeah, Jen, that's our two solitudes. This week, we talk about the Liberal Party convention and ask ourselves, if you don't have internal party democracy, what do you really have? Meanwhile, NAFTA is a shit show, but Justin has the receipts. That's right, I'll be digging into my grab bag of access to information requests to bring you the tea on the North American Free Trade Agreement. Is that the trade? Is tea the trade? No, tea is like slang. It's like tea is like... It's what the kids are saying these days, Jen. What are you talking about? We're not children. Neither of us is a child anymore, Justin. Let's move on. And we hear from the man the Kremlin calls a convicted criminal, fraudster, and financial bandit, and who has pushed the West to sanction corrupt Russian officials in retaliation for the murder of his ex-lawyer. So it's a pretty lighthearted episode, all in all. FreshBooks is a ridiculously easy-to-use cloud accounting software for small business owners that saves you time and gets you paid faster. It's now used by more than 10 million people worldwide. For your 30-day free trial, go to freshbooks.com oppo and enter OPPO in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Oppo is supported in part by HelloFresh, the meal kit service dedicated to making cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Each week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone, from novices to seasoned home cooks short on time. They source the freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantity needed so there's no food waste. All delivered to your doorstep in a special insulated box for free. For 50% off your first box, visit HelloFresh.com oppo and enter promo code oppo, O-P-P-O, when you subscribe. So, Justin, apparently the Liberals held a campaign rally. Uh, I mean convention in Halifax last week. Yeah, grassroots liberals from around the country got together to make their voices heard on a variety of policy issues like drug decriminalization and sex work, only to have their leader respond by saying, I don't care, lol. Right, because of course there is no such thing as a grassroots liberal party anymore. For that matter, there is no actual liberal party. Yeah, so for those who have been following along, in Halifax over the last couple of weeks, the liberal party got together to discuss policy resolutions and to to vote on various things that they would love to see in the party platform. And I think we always think of these things as sort of back of the napkin resolutions coming from a bunch of crazy socialists. But in reality, a lot of these resolutions are really thought out. They're detailed, they're researched, they're methodical, and they're actually pretty... I don't know, out there in progressive, especially for a party that styles itself as progressive. They're pretty forward thinking. Two of the big ones that got a lot of attention over the last couple of weeks uh, was one on sex work, which read, you know, be it resolved, the Liberal Party of Canada repeal the 2014 Protection of Communities and Exploited Persons Act, which is the legislation that actually criminalizes the purchasing of sex work, and begin a consultation period where basically they talk about the legalization of sex work entirely. The other one was on drug possession. In order to fight the opioid crisis, the party members got together and started discussing discussing a resolution that would have called on the government to reclassify low-level drug possession and consumption charges as administrative violations instead of criminal charges. In effect, the Liberal Party wanted their own government to decriminalize sex work and drug possession. And the Prime Minister came back and said, too bad, I don't really care. Yeah, so I think we have to even go back a little bit further in time here and talk a little bit about what conventions are and what they're actually supposed to be within the democratic process as we've come to understand it over the last hundred years. So traditionally speaking... Yeah, yeah, Jen, history lesson. So traditionally in a convention, if you've never covered them, they're actually really fun and interesting to cover because what happens is is that, you know, every single constituency has this little core of hardcore party diehards who meet and discuss all kinds of issues related to their constituency and who gets selected to run in nominations and all those sorts of things. And it's really great. And what traditionally happens is that these individual constituencies will come up with potential resolutions that then get debated at convention floor. So when you get to a convention floor, the first thing you would media get handed is this big package. It's like, well, here are all the resolutions that we're going to be debating at the convention floor today. And what a lot of media tend to do is they tend to look for the most outlandish or crazy shit and then do these big headline pieces like, uh, the NDP wants to become a communist, wants Canada to become a communist <laughs> government. Or, or, or they of take course, a look Of course, at- for the Conservative Party in the last couple of years, a lot of focus was paid on a motion that 
that would have formally abandoned their policy on opposing gay marriage. Yeah, exactly. So they focus on the, the crazy stuff. But what often gets left That's out of that, that crazy, coverage... But, no, yeah. no, no. Yeah, it's no, it's exactly. the sexy stuff. Yeah, exactly. It's sexy stuff. But what, the, what often gets left out of this coverage is the fact that almost none of those resolutions ever even make the floor. And that's because there's this really complicated backroom wrangling that decides which policy resolutions actually gets which priority. And as a result, they're really able, the party leadership is generally able to sort of wiggle down the stuff that they know is going to be controversial or untenable. And they wiggle up the stuff that they think is going to be less controversial or more more fathomable for the party to deal with. And, it, and, and certainly, so it's is, certainly true that, you know, the, the party leadership over the last, you know, half century has gotten more involved in this whole process and has been a little bit better at scripting and stage managing all of this. I recall an NDP convention a couple years ago, I, I think in Montreal, where there was actually a very similar resolution of the one we just talked about, about sex work and, and decriminalizing sex work, where a number of MPs took to the floor to basically run interference and make sure that it never kind of came to a vote, or if it did, it was going to lose. So, you know, I, I think, you know, this history lesson is good because it kind of maps out how over the last number of years, parties have been sort of more skittish about this whole process. Right. And they've essentially been centralizing more and more of it. But traditionally speaking, the party would come up with these resolutions and then this would get incorporated into a platform so that essentially the party wasn't just some centralized top-down thing that get, got ran out of the leader's office. Actually, there was a grassroots and the grassroots would have a significant say in trying to shape overall party policy going into the election. But what the liberals have done is they've just completely done away with all of that. So this well... is actually the first... No, 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 they have. Now, here's where I'm going to explain why they, they've gotten away with all of that is because this is actually the first election where there, there haven't even been delegated members. Like this is not a delegated convention where you have a certain number of people coming from every single constituency or riding anymore. Now it's just a goddamn free for all where anybody who can fly over to Halifax and sign up for the membership gets to go hang out in this convention rally. So like because there is no membership, any real Liberal Party membership anymore, there's no actual accountability. This isn't grassroots members coming together to help the party create and craft policy. This is a campaign rally where they debate policy that then everything is now so centralized in the leader's office can just say, nah, we'll pass. You have no power. You have no, it isn't a party anymore. It's a brand. And I think that that but is here's where that, I disagree, that's what's though. fundamentally changed here. That's not unique to the Liberal Party. I mean, no party convention matters anymore. I mean, you know, maybe the NDP is actually the most emblematic of that. The NDP used to be the party that was most dedicated to the grassroots, you know, membership, apart from maybe the Reform Party, because I think a lot of credit goes there with their direct democracy nonsense. But, you know, the NDP was kind of founded on the idea that not only local members, but local unions, local church groups, and, you know, all sorts of crazy nutjob Marxists could get together and sort of build out the party platform and set direction for the party so that, you know, the insiders won't be the ones doing it. You know, the NDP was created to reject the sort of Bay Street liberals of the Liberal Party uh, and the sort of oil tycoons of the Conservative Party. And it's so funny to me that they've gone wildly in the opposite direction. If anything, I would hazard a guess and say the NDP conventions are now the most scripted and tightly managed conventions in the country. So but I think the latest is the defeated liberals is not totally fair. Well, I would agree that all parties have over time drifted in this direction, but I think that the liberals have taken this further than any of the other parties. And I go back right down to like to sort of 2015 when they created the supporter class of membership where anybody could essentially just sign up to vote for Justin Trudeau. The problem with that is that when you create a supporter class of membership, when, when membership doesn't actually mean anything, when there's no sacrifice or requirement required of membership, it's not really membership anymore. Essentially, all it is is, is data mining. All they're asking for you. It's almost like voter registration. Yeah, exactly. It's voter registration. It's data mining. They're just using you so that they can get you on an email database so that they can send you fundraising campaign emails. That That's all they're, that, that support class is doing for you. And the whole process by which a party was sort of a two-sided conversation beside the grassroots and the leadership of that party or the oligarchy within that party, I think the liberals have essentially completely abolished that. And, and so, you know, let's bring this back to like, the specifics of what we're talking about, because I think this is academic for some people, but the party membership in Halifax got together and, you know, had a vigorous back and forth in like basically what is in some ways a constituent assembly, kind of the most primarily democratic thing where anybody off the street you know, now because of this this membership class can come in and debate policy that could later be hopefully policy of the governing party of Canada. And they decided that they wanted to decriminalize the sex trade, create more pension protections for workers, decriminalize low-level drug possession to fight the opioid epidemic, which is killing thousands, and, you know, numerous other things, establishing a, a Mincom model. You know, these are big policy ideas. And totally. in response to that, the Prime Minister and the Liberal Party of Canada said, 
Oh, thanks for your input. We'll think about it and give you a call. Yeah, come check out our speech with David Axelrod on the main stage at three kind of thing. Exactly. That is so offensive to me. I mean, you know, on most of these things, they said kind of, we'll think about it. On drug decriminalization, they said, no, sorry, we've already made up our minds. Tough shit. You know, that's not acceptable to me. No, and it tells you everything you need to know that there was not even a pander there. Like, there really wasn't even a pretend no. to take this seriously. It was like, that was, it's almost like they're treating this like the model UN. Thanks for coming out, kids. Exactly. That is offensive. You know, it is tough. These things are controversial, but you have some cover. I mean, we have countries in the world that have decriminalized drug possession. We have countries that have decriminalized sex work. Hell, Canada was one of them for many years, or for at least a year. But in Canada, the NDP have already come out in favor of drug decriminalization. And if the Liberal Party is good at anything, it's stealing NDP policy. So it's not that out there, guys. I would argue we, are, we already are doing drug decriminalization to some extent. I mean, you want to see what some of, the, some, of, yeah, some of the policies that are now being passed by like the CMA and, and doctors is that if you have, are dealing with someone who has a chronic opioid addiction, one of the things that they're now moving toward is giving prescription levels of certain opioids and drugs. Yeah. So that, you know, I mean, we're already moving in that direction. So and if the Canadian Medical Association can debate it, you know what? So can the Liberal Party of Canada. Track your hours, format the estimate, work out taxes, capture your expenses, chase that late payment, prepare the invoice, submit the proposal. Welcome to the worst part of being a freelancer, otherwise known as paperwork. The good news is that our friends at FreshBooks have created ridiculously easy-to-use counter-clouding software for freelancers that turns tracking these time-sucking, never-ending tasks into no big thing. Send a polished invoice in 30 seconds, set yourself up to get paid online in two clicks, and manage your expenses by taking pictures of receipts from your phone. Oh, and if you need to whip up a quick proposal to land the gig, FreshBooks has you covered. Now you can include an outline of your project's scope of work and a timeline as part of your estimate. No more switching software, no more fussing over style and formatting, and most importantly, no more wasting your precious time. To find out all the ways FreshBooks will transform how you deal with your paperwork, go to freshbooks.com slash oppo and enter oppo, O-P-P-O, in the how did you hear about us section. And now for a recurring segment on oppo, red stream, blue stream. Well, Jen, which internationally lauded environmentalist of the oil slick deplorables in your part of the country want to drag through the tar sands this week? Why funny you should ask. That internationally lauded environmentalist is David Suzuki, predictably. So this is actually a really fascinating story. So um, the University of Alberta decides to grant David Suzuki an honorary degree. And who speaks up about this first of all? Guess. Guess who the person is. Is it Jason Kenney? I don't even I don't even want to play the, the oil is, the oil slick deplorable. No, the person who first speaks up against David Suzuki is that noted oil slick deplorable, Andrew Leach. Oh. Also known also known as literally the University of Alberta professor, economics professor who helped the NDP craft their climate change policy. What, what was Andrew Leach's concern? Andrew Leach went on quite the little Twitter tirade about Suzuki, noting that Suzuki has, for the last 30 years of his career, basically shat on economics, even though he had really no understanding about economics yeah. or how any yeah. of it works. It's a good point. So... Yeah, so it is a totally fair point. So anyway, this raised the ire of a lot of people. And what got really interesting after this point is activism in Alberta is a very interesting thing to watch because it ain't protesting on the streets kind of activism. The type of activism that happens in this province is email activism. It's somebody influential who has a really wide network of wealthy and powerful people start sending chain emails and these start things start to work their way through <laughs> This no, is my you, version of hell. No, and but then these chain emails start to like work their way through these networks and I started to get privy to these things about just how pissed off people were about the fact that Suzuki was getting this honorary degree. And then all of a sudden you're hearing this chatter like the dean of engineering push sends this uh, long email and basically pushing back saying like the university shouldn't have given this guy the honorary degree. The university is clearly under pressure but I mean like it's not public pressure it's very clearly private pressure from donors who are now pulling out of the university and saying we're not going to fund you if you're going to fund this guy University of Alberta, of course, is trying to gain international cred and reputation, and they now can't show themselves to be pushed around by small ball donors in Alberta. They have to stand by this honorary degree awarding. Um, and in the meantime, the entire province is kind of losing its mind about this. And what's fascinating to me about the whole furor over the Suzuki honorary degree isn't necessarily the fact that it's an honorary degree granted to Suzuki. I mean, the, the schools here have granted honorary degrees to people like this for a really, really long time. What's fascinating about it to me is that it demonstrates just how much Alberta is cracking. 
Like, this is a province that has undergone several years now of a very devastating recession and oil bust. This is a province that feels, now I'm talking about feelings here, I'm talking about emotion. This is a province that feels that it keeps on getting kicked in the teeth from the rest of Canada, that it can't get a pipeline built no matter what we do. I mean, we put together this great, you know, country-leading climate change strategy policy. Nobody seems to care. You know, this is a country that consumes oil products at an enormous rate that benefits financially from what Alberta produces, and yet is absolutely happy to continue to make Alberta like the bogeyman of the petrochemical economy. And like to me, what this controversy symbolizes is just how emotional and heated and angry people are that they're like snapping. They're just losing it. And this is like the Suzuki thing is just like the straw that that broke the camel's back. Like this is a dude who is coming around saying things like the energy economy is is the moral equivalent to slavery. And now we're honoring him in, in one of our top schools institutions. Like it's just it's just too much. It's not it really isn't about David Suzuki. It's about what David Suzuki has now come to represent in the mind of Albertans. And David Suzuki represents the sort of fundamental hypocrisy of the rest of Canada for a province that feels like it has been on the receiving end of a lot of bullshit for a very long time. Albertans have been having this conversation for years, for years. And I think that like people are just fed up and fatigued with it, myself included. So can we please stop? Can, can we appoint David Suzuki as official spokesperson for Trans Mountain? Oh, totally. That's perfect. Okay, perfect. Problem solved. <laughs> I mean, there, your problem solved, Canada, Justin and Jen. We're just... <laughs> problem solvers. That's what they call us. Okay. So, Justin, you are a low energy blue pill popper. What's bubbling to the top of your social media feeds of outrage and woe? Okay. So, unfortunately, mine's a, a little bit down. You know, like many, I've been horrified by the van attack in Toronto of the past week. As I'm sure everyone is aware, a guy by the name of Alex Manassian rented a van and used it to hit as many people as possible on a busy street just north of downtown Toronto. Uh, according to a Facebook post of his, his motivation was to strike back at women because they didn't want to have sex with him. Now, there's obviously a long conversation to be had about a whole bunch of these different topics, and we should get into those at some point. Mental illness, terrorism, online radicalization, sexism, misogyny. Obviously, I want to hear about all of that, but for right now, I want to focus on something that I heard from numerous women who reached out to me after I wrote a piece in the Globe and Mail just this last week about the incel or involuntarily celibate community. And, and there's one tweet in particular that kind of stuck with me. And it's, it's a woman who just said, you know, I got threats over an article I wrote a few years ago. She said, you know, like most women with an opinion on the Internet. And it's something I heard again and again from women saying, you know, we've been talking about this for years. The online troll community is terrifying. It's violent. It's misogynistic. It's racist. It's so on. And I get some of it. You know, I'm a gay dude. I get homophobic posts, but I occasionally get a glimpse into what women get and it scares the shit out of me. And it's dawning on me over the last couple of days that we haven't taken it seriously enough. And Jen, I can only imagine you probably get plenty of this. I don't have to be telling you about this, but it's something that struck me because, you know, a lot of the time these sort of things feel very sort of esoteric or disconnected from reality. But we now have a potential attack that killed 10 people, mostly women, done by a guy who hated women in a community of people who torment women online. And I would like to think we talked about this enough previously, but I don't think we have. Now that I'm sitting here, I'm realizing we have not addressed this fulsomely enough. And to compare the amount of time I've spent doing interviews, writing stories about online Islamic radicalism versus the amount of time I've spent sitting around talking, writing articles about online anti-women radicalization, I'm realizing it doesn't stack up. And that makes me feel pretty shitty. I don't think you should feel super shitty. I mean, a little shitty is probably a good place for <laughs> most men to feel at all times. But Fair enough. Then, then you will get a, a sense of how women feel all the time. No, I mean, truth be told, I don't really get it as bad as I think a lot of women do. And I, think I sort of analyze why that is. I think there's a couple of reasons. One is because I ruthlessly block and mute. I'm really quite mm. diligent about that. That's smart. The other thing, too, is honestly, I don't really talk about feminism a lot. And yeah. You know, I, I think that a lot of the really nasty stuff gets directed to women who have the audacity to suggest that women should have equal political and economic rights to men and make that sort of the, 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 one of their champion causes. And maybe I'm a bad woman or a bad feminist, but to be honest with you, I'm just, I was just, I've just always really been more into the nitty gritty of politics or pipeline issues or like those sorts of, I haven't really delved into the culture wars so much. And I think that if you, you kind of have a tendency to stay out of culture war issues, culture war issues have a tendency 
agency mm. to stay out of you. That being said, have I been subject to harassment and threats and all that sort of stuff? Have I had to call the police on readers? Yeah, I mean, I've had to do all that. That's that's pretty normal for, I think, most women. It's horrifying. Uh, yeah, it is horrifying. It shouldn't happen. I'm not trying to minimize it in any way. What do we talk about, though? What do, how, do we, how do we fix this? How do we, like, do you want to know what actually really horrified me today? No, I want to say, tell something that actually horrified me today. It's something that Jeet here sort of brought to, I think everybody said she was tweeting about it. So the original quote is this, is by, for, by a guy named Robin Hansen. Those with less access to sex plausibly suffer similarly to those with low income and might similarly hope to organize to lobby for redistribution along this axis. Strikingly, I see little overlap between those concerned about income and sex inequality. Sex inequality, like sex is a thing that can be distributed like money. I mean, <laughs> I don't think this guy's an incel. He isn't. But the degree to which you have to not see women as people to make an argument like that is what I find disturbing because because there there is no way to forcibly redistribute sex with women without having a conversation about rape or at the very least coercion. And fair enough. The conversation needs to happen. We need to actually address this head on and just tackle it, which we haven't done thus far. I don't know how to tackle it. I don't know how to tackle it. We I don't figure know how to tackle it. it. We gotta figure I really it out. don't. And the problem that I have here is that like I think most women who have a public profile, I recognize and instantly dismiss a lot of this stuff for what exactly what it is, and that is Men who don't see women as people and who are lashing out at women with opinions because they are trying to, in some small way, shut them down in a bid to make room for their own spaces in their own light. And that's really yeah. all it is. And it works on a lot of women. I mean, that's the other thing that I think maybe we don't have a conversation about is that there are women who, who are out there who are willing to put up with this to a certain degree. It absolutely takes an effect on you. I think it has a toll on every woman who is in the public sphere. I mean, I don't know one of us who isn't a little weird mm. or isn't a little anxious as a result of some of this shit that happens online now. And I'm certainly one. Yeah. Alpo is also supported in part by HelloFresh, the meal kit service dedicated to making cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Each week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes. This kit is meant for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks short on time. They source the freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantity needed so there's no food waste, and it's all delivered to your doorstep in a special insulated box for free. For 50% off your first box, visit hellofresh.ca slash oppo and enter the promo code OPPO when you subscribe. So, NAFTA. Jen, it says here you should just be endless screaming. Yes, I literally just wrote endless screaming <laughs> between two asterisks. scream endlessly for uh... me? <laughs> Yes, That's so that enormously important deal that governs 80% of our trade with the U.S. According to Trump, that was supposed to be negotiated for the most part by the end of last year, and then by the end of March, and now April, and now in May. Justin, poor, poor, poor Christia Freeland looks like she's on the edge of death. What is taking so long with this deal? Well, as of this taping, there actually seems to be some optimism that it's coming to the end of the tunnel. I mean, notwithstanding some random Trump tweets about uh, as... <laughs> I mean, every time Trump tweets about, as former Mexican president Vicente Fox puts it, that fucking wall, it seems like it's farther and farther away. But, you know, according to negotiators and people on the ground, numerous chapters have already been closed. And even the Mexicans think that a deal might be around the corner. It's closed next month. I mean, okay, but let, that's but pretty let's huge. Be, but let's be clear. It's like six out of 30 chapters have been closed. So numerous, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, six is better than zero. Yeah, but nobody's really arguing the non-contentious stuff. I mean... Look, Justin, I have a confession. I think that a NAFTA deal is not going to happen. And there's a number really? of reasons why I think, yeah, I think I think it's not, either it's going not going to happen or it's going to happen in the worst possible way. So the original NAFTA deal from beginning to close, from like negotiation to, you know, legal fine tuning to vote and ratification took about 30 months. And we're about seven months in. There are a bunch of political deadlines that are coming up that essentially can't be avoided and almost certainly won't be made. So the number one deadline that seems to be coming up is the fact that in order for any kind of NAFTA deal to pass Congress before the midterm elections in November, an actual deal would have to be complete by like the end of May at the absolute latest. And 
truth be told, there are some experts who have said already, like, it's too late. You can't reasonably get a NAFTA deal past Congress at this point. Well, that doesn't really matter, though. I mean, any deal is going to pass Congress. Like, there, there's almost, I mean, most congressional votes on, on trade deals are up or down votes. They don't actually, they've lost a lot of power to tinker. Yeah, yeah, but you, there, there are strict deadlines here. Um, yeah, but, I, but, I, I can but point it, it out directly. But there's Most like, congressmen and senators have very little impetus to actually mess around with NAFTA. For most members of Congress, it's pretty popular in their district. And you know, the vast majority of both houses are actually in favor of NAFTA, thanks in no small part to an aggressive Canadian lobbying effort. And sure, that might change after the midterms, but if anything, it's only going to improve. Democrats, at least these days, tend to be more sympathetic to NAFTA than, than the Republicans. So I don't know that there's any concern from that end. I think as soon as Trump is willing to put his name on a document here, we're going to see that document eventually make it through Congress. Uh, yeah, but the question is, will it be made through Congress before the midterm election, which may completely decimate the current composition of the House and Senate? So under U.S. trade law, what needs to happen is that if you have a deal on the table, in a best case scenario, the U.S. International Trade Commission has exactly 105 days to analyze the economic impact of that deal. So there's 105 days right off the bat. In addition, there are a couple of other procedural hurdles that have hard time frames attached to them. So if you want to get a trade deal like this passed before Congress, before the midterm election, so again, before who the fuck knows what happens it has to essentially there's a there's a hard timeline it has to be done by the very latest at the end of may let me let me pause this to you Uh, trump doesn't want it passed before the midterms what trump would want is announcing literally the day before the vote that they have a nafta deal a lot of you know the, the americans i think probably more than any other time previously there's some pulling data that does back this up, support NAFTA. I mean, NAFTA is actually relatively popular in its, in its, in its you know, its adult life. And you know what? I, the one thing I think I've started to realize from Trump recently is that he's really enjoyed winning. I mean, you know, that's a shocker from a guy who uses that like his personal catchphrase. Um, but, you know, after his first year in office, the Trump administration only had losses on the books. Now you see Trump walking around like he has a new lease on life because he has tax reform done. The Korea deal looks like it's going relatively well. His strikes on Syria seem relatively well tolerated. He seems like he's a man who wants wins at any cost. I do not put it past him even slightly to jettison all of his past beliefs on NAFTA for the sake of actually getting a yeah, deal done. Yeah, but here's the thing. He didn't promise to get a deal done. He promised to just blow it up. If he were to come here and like they were to all come together with some kind of uh, deal that he could then sell as a win to his base, okay, yeah, maybe. At this point, there's some real doubts that that deal can possibly pass Congress in time for the midterms. Fine, but maybe he doesn't need them to technically pass midterms. But the promise is still fundamentally broken because the other problem is that even if he has a deal in principle, if it doesn't pass Congress, the next, um, again, the next composition of the House and the Senate could be made up of people who are completely happy with NAFTA as it is or who just want to like block Trump's agenda for the sake of it, in which case the whole thing goes into limbo indefinitely. So even even like a, even a deal, even a well, but but that is actually what is about to happen. If they don't have a deal, like basically between now, sometime between now and the next like three three or four weeks, they won't have a deal in time for the midterm election. Which means the, okay, said, but, the possibility but, but, but of this on, thing though. stalling in limbo indefinitely becomes but, the real likelihood, particularly as the Mexican election is on July first, right? So a, a, oh, the a, Mexican a, the Mexican election is going to be the I think way larger impact because the Mexican election is still completely up in the air, and we have totally. no idea whether it's going to be an institutional guy or. Or, or functionally, like the Mexican answer to Trump in uh, a wild populist, either from the quasi right or from the far left. So yeah, all bets are off there. But I can tell you from the American yeah. side, I know for a fact that in Trudeau's office, there is a relatively high degree of confidence that if there's going to be a problem, it's not going to come from Congress. Um, and it's Thanks in part to the fact that they have lobbied so aggressively, not just, you know, members of of Congress and the Senate, but also governors, local politicians, business leaders, NGO leaders, and more importantly, kind of party elders to make sure that even if there is a massive change in the composition uh, of both houses, that there's not going to be a significant difference in the actual attitudes there. So I actually, I, I just in the last couple of weeks, I got back a couple hundred pages of access to information request documents on the Canadian strategy around NAFTA. And they're quite interesting. They're not revelatory. A lot of it's redacted. Obviously, the government is trying to hold back anything sensitive that could derail negotiations. But the one thing I did get is actually Christia Freeland's itinerary for one day of meetings in D.C. And I will go through all of it, but it's it's pretty interesting because it is 
probably one of the most crammed schedules I've ever seen for a minister. She arrived at Dulles in D.C. in 955. 11.15, she's meeting uh, with Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross. By 12.15, she's meeting with a Republican senator from North Dakota. 1 p.m. We she's don't really have to go through her Republican entire day, yeah. But we're going to. By 2 p.m., there's another uh, meeting with Secretary Tillerson, 3.30, another Republican, 4.45, a Democrat, 5.30, a group of a dozen or more senators. I mean, you know, we actually have done a pretty great job of figuring out who needs to get talked you to. Don't, I mean, you don't need to convince me that Freeland's done a good job on this file. I think she's actually one of the shining stars of, of the liberal cabinet. Like, And I'm not being sarcastic in any way when I say that. Yeah. I mean, that's been not a great cabinet overall, no but doubt. Freeland's been one of the rare standouts. So, like, I've got no doubt that she's competent. I've got no doubt that she's meeting the right people. I've got no doubt that Canada is doing everything within its power to make this work and make it work to our advantage. But I will go back to this idea that even if we have Congress totally on our side from now up until like November and they will pass a NAFTA deal, we're still dealing with hard deadlines that even the most supportive Congress in the world can't necessarily fast forward. And as I said, we know that the Congress was is might be on our side in this particular cycle. But after November, we have got no idea what we're dealing with. We're like the entire, uh, but I, the, but the entire again, chess I, board know, gets reshuffled. I've talked to people both in D.C. and Ottawa about this. And I've asked them that specific question. What they basically said to me is that there's going to be continuity. I mean, it's not as though Nancy Pelosi is going to be taken out on a raft and pushed to sea. I mean, she's still going to be around, right? I mean, any uncertainty at all comes from Trump, not from Congress and the Senate. I mean, both houses have been pretty consistent for the past 20 years that they feel okay about NAFTA. There's been some conversation about tinkering with it. But that's what we're doing. I mean, it's really only a handful of senators on the far left and far right who feel differently. I think I'm not being clear here. I'm not worried about Congress. That's not really my concern. My concern here is that Trump, in his desperation to score a major victory ahead of the midterms, is going to do something crazy. Yeah, and that's the danger. Because there isn't any time to get an actual deal passed by Congress, regardless of whether or not they're good or bad, like that's not relevant, because there's simply no time to do that, that essentially the risk is that Trump will do something crazy, like try to just unilaterally shut down the deal and create some kind of version of zombie NAFTA, which will create enormous trade uncertainty on both sides of the border. Now, I'm not sure that that's going to happen, and I particularly don't think that that's going to happen now that Trump has found himself or sort of finagled himself into some kind of trade war with China. Like, I don't think it benefits the U.S. to be fighting a trade war on two fronts. And I think that, you know, Trump, for all of his conversations about what a great deal breaker and great negotiator he is, has put himself into a bind because he actually doesn't have the leverage from here on in because he doesn't have the cards to get the deal passed before the midterms. And as I said, because of the situation with China, Canada actually has the upper hand in a lot of in a lot of regards. And I think that there's going to be a pressure to put together a fairly non-controversial NAFTA deal that all sides of the borders can more or less agree to. And that a future Congress isn't going to have much incentive to shoot down. That is what I think is the most likely outcome, which yeah. is probably the least sexy outcome, which probably means that that is not what's going to happen at all and that Trump is going to blow it up on Twitter. It's probably safe to say that Bill Browder is public enemy number one for the Russian government. Browder spent more than a decade working to root out corruption in Russian industry, and for that, he was declared persona non grata. He is the man behind the Magnitsky Act, a legislation you've probably heard of but don't really know all that much about. He spent the better part of the past eight years trying to convince governments worldwide to adopt the legislation, named for his former lawyer who was tortured and killed in a Russian prison, which would impose sanctions, travel bans, and even asset freezes on corrupt Russian officials and oligarchs. Bill, thanks for joining me. Great to be here. So according to the Russian embassy in Canada, you are a convicted criminal, a fraudster, and a financial bandit. They forgot to say that they've accused me of being a serial killer, uh, <laughs> MI6 and CIA spy trying to bring down the Russian Federation and responsible for the Skripal poisoning. So I'm surprised they haven't brushed up on their homework. You've been busy. I mean, it's it's tough to do that much international intrigue. And um, I know your podcast listeners can't see me, but I'm Pretty unlikely. I look pretty unlikely to be that that international bandit that they make me out to be. But you know, looks can be deceiving. So you know, previously the the international sanction regime didn't really contemplate stuff like this, right? The sanction regime was a kind of a state to state thing. If if you were persecuting minorities or if you invaded Kurdistan, sanctions would wind up on your country. We never really tried to go after individual oligarchs or officials or you name it uh, in the past. So do you think that this is a significant change? I mean, to some degree, I think people would say it's symbolic. Well, it's definitely not symbolic. It's it's highly um, efficient. So basically, the way I would describe this, this is kind of like the new technology for dealing with bad guys around the world. It's very difficult and very imprecise if you sanction a whole country. So if let's say no more stuff can be sold to Iran. Well, so the average Iranian who has nothing to do with all the bad stuff is suffering. And the, the guys at the top are all flying in plane loads of whatever stuff they can't get 
because of these sanctions. And so what this new law, the Magnitsky law does, is, is it turns the whole thing around, which is to say, who's the guys doing the bad stuff? And you sanction them personally, and you sanction them personally by putting them on a sanctions list, by freezing their assets and banning their travel. And everyone else you leave alone. So in Russia, you have a bunch of guys, not that many, maybe a thousand guys who are completely ruining the country. And then there's a lot of people working for them who are helping ruin the country. But the average Russian is just a victim of this as much as, as um, everybody else is. And so what this does is it, it's like a, a modern-day cancer drug. Instead of almost killing the patient to kill the cancer cell, you just find the cancer cell and, and wipe it out in a very targeted, direct way. And this is highly effective. And, and we know this is effective because uh, Putin has told us so. Putin's reaction to the Magnitsky Act was so vehement and so angry and so, and he wasn't playing poker at all. He was just, he didn't keep a poker face on this thing, whole thing. First thing he did when the Magnitsky Act was passed in the United States is he um, banned the adoption of Russian orphans by American families. Now that sounds pretty horrible by itself, but when you look, when you dig down into the details, what that really means, the orphans that were being adopted were the sick orphans, the ones with HIV and, and Down syndrome and other things. And many of these orphans could not be cared for in Russian orphanages. And so they would die in Russian orphanages unless an American family came along and picked them up and took them back, which Americans did on a regular basis. So by banning these adoptions, Putin was effectively sentencing orphan children to death to respond to the Magnitsky Act. You know, it's interesting because the use of, of, of that tactic led the Putin government effectively sort of make this about something different. They didn't want to belay how much they were actually frustrated, angry, being screwed over by the Magnitsky Act. So they made it about adoption. And so, of course, this came up in the U.S. presidential election when the Kremlin-linked lawyer brought this up uh, with Donald Trump Jr. Well, so, um, yeah, <laughs> let me back up one step. Um, Putin was explicit about how much he hated the Magnitsky Act. He, he put together a foreign policy white paper about how what he thought was important. And he said repealing the Magnitsky Act is his single largest foreign policy priority. And when they weren't able to stop it from happening and they saw it starting to catch fire and spread to other countries, they then embarked on a massive international campaign to try to stop it from spreading. And part of that campaign was a woman named Natalia Veselnitskaya, who um, you called her a Kremlin link lawyer. She has recently been outed as effectively a Russian agent. There are documents now which basically prove she's a Russian agent. She said Vladimir Putin sent an uh, an agent into uh, Trump Tower to meet with Donald Trump Jr., Paul Manafort, and Jared Kushner, and that she had only one request on, on behalf of Vladimir Putin, which was to repeal the Magnitsky Act. So in Canada, you know, there was a time where it almost seemed incredibly unlikely that we would have adopted something like the Magnitsky Act because Canada had this whole envisionment of basically reestablishing diplomatic ties with Russia. And I think you were you've been quite critical of, of you know the previ our previous foreign affairs minister Stefan Dion, his plan to to basically make nice with Putin um, and become some sort of middle ground between the U.S. and Russia. Can you kind of give me some of the backstory of that? I mean, did you actually have conversations with, with Stefan Dion? Let me back up a couple steps before we get to Stefan. So the um, I had been working with Erwin Kotler, um, former Justice Minister of Canada and a member of Parliament at the time, to get a Magnitsky Act in Canada. He was my, um, my main partner in this exercise. And we had spent a long time. We started at the same time as we started in the United States, but it took a long time. And then we finally had convinced, at the time, the conservative government. He was a liberal yeah, MP. because they had introduced the bill a couple of times. It just didn't really go anywhere. We convinced the conservative government. They were ready to do it. It was, it was all about actually bells and whistles, you know, dotting I's and crossing T's. And then all of a sudden, as it happens, the, you know, an election was called. And so when the election was called, we then went out to all the different political parties and said, if, if your party forms a government, Will you do a Magnitsky Act? And, and this was an important thing, uh, mainly because a large part of the Canadian population comes from uh, Ukraine and Poland and Eastern Europe. And, and this was relevant for them. Those people, we had been in touch with all the major diaspora groups, and they were all fully on board that, that Canada should have this. And so it became a domestic political issue. And every, every political party, the um, liberals, the conservatives, and the NDP all supported uh, the Magnitsky Act in writing. And so then Trudeau and the liberals won the election, he forms a government, and Stefan Dion comes in, and he's too afraid to actually say that he doesn't want to do Magnitsky. He, he's, this is like sort of trying to squash it by stealth. He, he was like not even a man enough to say we don't want to do it and then try to defend his position. And so there was all this sort of weird passive-aggressive sweeping it under the carpet stuff going on, and we became, it became clearer and clearer that he was absolutely against it. And then people started to break ranks and actually tell us what he was saying behind closed, closed doors, which was that he was absolutely against it. And when we asked why, the only excuse he could give really was that 
he wanted to go to conferences that Russia was was part of. And and I, I thought, so uh, what, well, you want to give up being like a moral leader so that you can go to conferences? That's just shocking. And um, and so I, I wasn't shy at all about basically calling him a, a craven appeaser of Russia. Uh, and uh, to this day, I, I, the fact that he's he's been so disingenuous about not even explaining himself, I still hold ill will towards him. But anyways, the, the good news is that um, he was clearly not a good foreign foreign minister in, in this area. And he was, um, I guess, pretty bad in some other areas because he got sacked. I'm not sure if you read it, but there's a, there's a new book that came out the last couple of weeks. It's, it's in French, but we actually had the, the author on the podcast like two weeks ago. Um, and he kind of gave us the backstory, and it was more or less, that, that Trudeau was sort of fed up with amongst other things, um, Stefan Dion's insistence of reestablishing relations with Russia. And basically the only conversation, the only one-on-one conversation they had for his entire tenure, almost almost two years, a year and a half, as foreign affairs minister was about Russia, where Stefan Dion was insisting again and again, you know, it's time to drop the sanctions, it's time to re-engage the dialogue. And Trudeau basically says, you're fired. Would you like a job in Europe? Um, it gets basically shuffled out of the country. So, you know, I, I think obviously some of that pressure worked. Well, and and, and the, the huge prize of his firing was Christian Freeland. And uh, she wasn't just a huge prize because she's an amazing person um, and really good at and knows how to how to do a lot of things that need to be done. But, but for me, it was a huge prize because I knew Christian. We go back all the way back to when I was starting my campaigns of against corruption in Russia. She was at the Financial Times, and she was the only journalist brave enough to run big anti-oligarch stories that I was giving to her. And so it was clear back then, I, I, you know, this um, diminutive person who is larger than life, she was a giant. Um, her cameos it, in your book are, are fantastic. I, yeah. I, wasn't, I wasn't quite anticipating them, and then suddenly Christia Freeland's making it. She, she was amazing. She was amazing. And, and, and the moment I met her, I knew that this was a person that, that was going to do amazing things far and beyond the financial times. And, and so she, did, she, she helped me expose a bunch of oligarchs, which was a brave thing to do back then. And, and reporters had been killed for doing that kind of stuff. And then she eventually found her way to to Reuters and then to Parliament. And and she was one of the big supporters of the Magnitsky Act in Parliament. I think she was the one who drafted the um, the uh, Liberal Party's commitment to um, to Magnitsky Act. And then all of a sudden, when Stefan Dion gets fired for being um, either like ineffective, incompetent, or appeasers or whatever he whatever the reasons were, she comes in. And it took a total of two weeks for her to turn everything around. And it's really only because of her that we were able to to get to write this um, and send our campaign in the right direction so we could actually get the Magnitsky Act passed. And, and we got it passed. And, and she's been a frequent target of, you know, Russian disinformation, Russian propaganda, Russian criticism. You know, the Russian embassy in Canada has spent an ungodly amount of time going after her. Um, so maybe you could talk a bit just about, you know, how the Russian government tried to stem the tide of this of this act spreading further. Because I think it's, you know, it's fair to say it was one of the, like you said, one of their top foreign policy priorities. I mean, they pulled out a lot of stuff. There was an Interpol red notice against you. It was repeated recently. Yeah, well, so first of all, the, the way that they do these things is they try to target anybody who they think is a leader of the, of the, of the whole initiative. They try to make personal consequences for anybody. And so they went on this big campaign against Christia with all sorts of complete nonsense about her grandfather, about uh, calling her. They, they do this whole anybody who's Ukrainian must be a Nazi and a fascist. And they tried to like paint her as a Nazi and fascist and, and all this kind of stuff. I've, I've talked about this bit on the show before, but I, I was getting messages from the Russian embassy I, I, uh, with exactly all this information you know, well before this all became public. They weren't even trying to hide it. Um, there's, there's also my main activist partner in Canada is a guy named Marcus Kolga. And um, Natalia Veselnitskaya publicly called for uh, an investigation, a criminal investigation in Moscow into Marcus Kolga, probably hasn't been, hasn't set foot in Russia ever. And they're going around, you know, poking at us and and, and finding also, so that those are the sort of most explicit things, but then they were also poking around with these agents of influence. And so there's a bunch of think tank people and academics who are writing op-eds in the, in the Globe and Mail and other other newspapers saying that you know this is going to lead to a third world war and all this kind of stuff and uh, and and it, I would say it was a highly ineffective counter campaign. Um, there's not a whole lot of people that really bought into it. They did have this one group. It was called the I can't remember the name of it. Some some kind of Russian diaspora group. That, that, oh yeah, yeah. And they, and they started, these guys were great. And what's that? These guys were great. I mean, they barely existed before they suddenly cropped out of nowhere to, to, to campaign letter, against the Magnitsky. Right, they, they wrote all these letters oh. to all these members of parliament saying, you know, you don't understand that we don't support this and we don't support you if you support this and so on and so forth. And and again, none of this stuff worked. And it was really, in a certain way, it's almost gratifying to watch them stumbling. So much, you know. I think this is interesting because you know we all give all this credit to Russia for being this incredibly cunning, um, you know, foreign power that is capable of you know untold things. But most of their actions are 
pretty clunky. I mean, you know, they, they've tried to use the Interpol system to go after you. They've tried and failed, I think, to, to influence politics, at least maybe outside the U.S., on a more global level. Well, it hasn't worked especially well. There's been a couple of exceptions, of course. But uh, even when they you know, try to clandestinely kill someone with, you know, a nerve agent, they get ID'd immediately and they didn't even succeed in killing the guy. Well, so this, this is a very important observation, which, which you present very accurately. Most people don't. They're not this all-powerful country. What they do is they'll initiate like 100 different operations with the full expectation that 99 of them will fail, fail badly, fail humiliatingly, wasting millions and millions of dollars on the hopes that just one of them succeeds. And the reason that they're able to do that is like, unlike any other Western democracy, there's no accountability for how they spend their money. And so they, it just doesn't matter. They can just waste and waste and waste money doing all this stuff, doing it very, very stupidly. But their objective is just to, to somehow slip through the cracks where, where somebody's not paying attention and having one of these things succeed. And I, I would go beyond that. So if you look at Russia very objectively, this is a country with, with a, um, an economy the size of New York State. Okay, this this is this is a country with a military which is five percent of the, the budget of the U.S. military. They're they're not an international superpower. They've got one thing, two two things going for them to put them on the world stage. One is that they got more nuclear warheads than anybody. I mean, but the second thing is that they're they're effectively an international mafia organization just going around making trouble wherever they can, and that trouble is more visible than anything else out there. It's like ISIS. You know, ISIS was going around making trouble. It's just a bunch of ragtag guys, you know, holding up trucks and kidnapping people to to fund their operations. But nevertheless, you know, Russia has managed to convince a handful of international players that there really is kind of a Russia versus the West divide, and they can convince some to join the Russia side. I mean, right now, and I know this is something you've been advocating for recently. Uh, a family by the name of the Mikov family who are you know being jailed in Guatemala because seemingly the Guatemalan government has has taken the side of, of Putin and basically the I think the charges against them are not dissimilar to the charges that you faced. Yeah, so the, so the story in the Bitkov family is really something that that has just gotten me so enraged. This is a uh, a story a family a Russian family that were a sub victim of a corporate raid in Russia, which is the same type of thing that happened to me. They um, stole their business and and more shockingly. At the time, they had a 16-year-old daughter named Anastasia who was kidnapped uh, for three days, drugged and repeatedly raped by the, um, by the corporate raiders. And then after they were, th their daughter was completely psychologically destroyed after all their money was stolen from, from the government, uh, they were told that they would be killed if they stayed in Russia, and so they fled. And first they went to Latvia, then they went to Turkey, and then they chose Guatemala thinking that they, they could just disappear into the other side of the world. And they, um, they, they took the little money they had left, which was, uh, and they, they uh, employed a Guatemalan law firm to apply for all the passport documents and so on. They eventually get to Guatemala, get passports. They learn Spanish. The father becomes a uh, high school math teacher. The mother becomes a drawing teacher at the same school. The daughter is finally sort of starting to normalize and recover from, from her horrific ordeal. They have one more child when they're in Guatemala. Five years later, the Russian government tracks them down. And the Russian government tracks them down. They hire the most expensive, prestigious lawyer in Guatemala who is also a Supreme Court judge. He was running a law firm and being a judge at the same time. He's like totally connected inside the Guatemalan legal system. His name is Henry Comte. And, and then between the Russian bank that was, do, that was running this operation, Henry Comte, they then um, uh, convince a UN anti-corruption organization which was paid for by the Canadian government, the U.S. government, and the um, EU, they convinced this organization, it's called CSEG, which is supposed to fight impunity in Guatemala, and they convinced them to prosecute this family for passport violations. And in the process, then the Russians show up and try to take the three-year-old child. So they arrest the family. They stick them in pretrial detention. They take this child, and they, tr they try to take, the Russians try to take the child back to Russia to stick him in an orphanage. And uh, thank God the child was only a Guatemalan citizen, so they couldn't, they couldn't legally do that. Then the Russians convinced the um, prosecutor to stick the child in a Guatemalan orphanage, even though the family, family's lawyer was ready to take the child. He comes. He, he spends 42 days in the orphanage while they're making desperate appeals. He comes out completely physically abused out of the orphanage. The family is sitting in pretrial detention, and eventually the case goes to court. And at the urging and at the insistence of this anti this UN anti-corruption organization, they sentence the father to 19 years in prison and the mother and daughter to 14 years in prison for passport violations. And so, I mean, this is like a totally perfect example of how how Russia is able to, and I don't think it's the Guatemalan government that's doing this. I think that they found individuals inside all these organizations that they paid money to. And there's a lot of very vicious rumors going around about who got paid in this whole story. 
And the message of this story, and it's just so heartbreaking, and the message for, for these Russians um, in Russia, why, why are they chasing this family, is, is, to, is so next time they go around to somebody and say, Get, hand over your business, and the person says no, they say, well, if you say no, you know, uh, look what happened to the Bitcoffs. So, you know, what's at the tail end of all of this? You know, obviously the Magnitsky Act has has started actually sort of hitting these officials and, and, and you know, the people carrying out Putin's agenda where it hurts. And obviously the Putin government is, is starting to feel the pain, both from this and from the generalized state sanctions. But it doesn't seem clear to anyone I've spoken to that, you know, that Putin's era is coming to an end or that there's a particular appetite for change. Obviously, they're there will be a crisis point eventually if you know if the sanctions continue. But you know, does something else need to give in order for either the the Putin administration to kind of stop its international aspirations or for the government to change? Well, I don't think it's it's our place to try to change the Russian government. I think they have to either the Russians have to change their own government. It's our place to contain them so that they don't do any of this nasty stuff going forward. And I would argue that very recently the um, the sanctions, the oligarch sanctions, have done exactly that, which is to contain Putin. So these oligarch sanctions, these seven richest oligarch tycoons who were sanctioned, that's Putin's money, or some of it's Putin's money. And you can see by everything that Putin has done since then that he's, it's like in a boxing match, he got smacked right in the face. He's now seeing double, he's like wobbly, he doesn't know what to do. If he retaliates, then then there's like seven more oligarchs we're going to sanction. The way you deal with Putin to stop all this stuff is is to create hard consequences for any bad actions. And he won't test people who create hard consequences. He laughs at appeasement, and he might grumble at, at consequences, but he's not going to um, do stuff where there's consequences. So he, uh, you know, remember, this is an economy the size of the state of New York. He'll start picking on people that we don't care about. You know, all we can do is contain him, and containment means um, devastating financial sanctions when they do all this election manipulation, Magnitsky sanctions um, against a lot of uh, regime officials who are doing human rights violations. It means uh, fully supporting NATO and NATO allies in, in Eastern Europe with enough firepower so that Putin understands that you know that he'll rue the day that he ever thought about doing anything in that part of the world. And things like um, when in Syria, if, if his allies start doing bad stuff, we go in uh, and we hit them hard. That's what Putin responds to. He doesn't respond to anything less than that. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. That was Oppo. I'm glad you learned about the shit woman take online, Justin. I mean, I learned that David Suzuki is persona non grata in Alberta. That was not a surprise. In fact, that was not, that's not actually very surprising <laughs> at all. We want to know what you think. Email us at oppo at canadalandshow.com. You can find us on Twitter at oppocast. And we have a very special end of the show because we've broken the 200 review mark on iTunes. So we're going to share with you some of the oh. very wonderful <laughs> feedback oh, we've gotten. <laughs> and I, we have not actually read these yet, so I'm, I'm very excited <laughs> to break into the old mailbag of the iTunes review catalog. Oh. And find out how much we suck. My favorite one is titled, Why Read Postmedia When You Can Listen to This? One Star by Lennon Lover 420 Really excellent surface-level analysis with opinions you can hear from your dad. <laughs> the, the next one comes from Just Terrible by Jan Basque. Great name, Jan. A podcast that nobody asks for and nobody needs can't understand why it exists. Candleland could spend its crowdfunded money, I'm a regular patron, thanks, on better projects. Dumpster Fire, one star, by Johnny Canuck and the Quantum Cowboys. Who thought these presenters were a good idea? Self-indulgent, silly, and stupid. In an effort to be amusing and cool, the hosts feel the need to be shallow and silly and vulgar. Sure, we are fucking vulgar. (laughs) Apparently, they've been overly influenced by American-style news and opinion programs. Please, grow up. Do your parents know you talk like this? Actually, they do. They do. Hi, I, I said, I actually want to do a version of this podcast with my gun-loving dad. I've actually run it by him. And when Justin wants to take a, a break, we're, we're absolutely going to do this. I'm really, I'm really excited. So please, everyone, go onto iTunes and leave us a review. And please make it as colorful and wonderful as the ones we've just read. And you might hear it on the air next week. Tankies, I think you can do better than this. <laughs> You and your tankies, Jen. Oh, I love the tankies. Lennon Lover 420. You're my person. 
The next episode of Oppo will be out in two weeks, Canada Land's original deep dive politics show for those of you who aren't looking for stuff that's shallow, silly, and vulgar. That show's called Commons, and it will be out next week. This episode was produced by David Crosby for Canada Land Media. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton, and music by Nathan Burley. I have the last word this week, and that word is quantum. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, I thought it would be good.